And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Somebody's daughter, somebody's child, somebody's pride and joy, somebody loves her for who she is inside. She has a mother and father. She's somebody's daughter. She is somebody's daughter. You know, I don't think we ever think of the issue of pornography in that fashion. Typically, it's an unknown face without a name, somebody that doesn't seem to be connected in any level toward reality. And, and as a result, the purveyors of this, uh, those who are making huge amounts of money uh, at the distribution, publication and distribution of pornography, really don't think about the impact. And yet it has a significant impact, and not only on the lives of, of those who are consuming the material, but those who are participating in it from an economic standpoint. Steve Siller joins us on the program. He is founder of Music for the Soul and executive producer of uh, part of the song you just heard there a moment ago, uh, highlighted um, Somebody's Daughter. And Steve, thanks so much for taking time to be with us tonight. Craig, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, the lyrics to your song certainly bring it home back to a, a level of reality that I suspect uh, most people um, who are trapped in a world of um, con- consuming a pornography, I don't quite know how, how, how to phrase that, uh, don't really ever stop to think about the fact that, you know what, these are, these are real people. These are real lives here. Mm-hmm. Human beings. Uh, whenever I talk to people about this uh, out, out in uh, churches and in schools and the like, I always ask the question, uh, you know, if, if this woman in, in the video were your uh, little sister, would that be okay? If it were your uh, wife or your girlfriend or your mother, how would, how would that be? And, and, and generally you just see heads start to drop around the room as, as people realize that that these are human beings. And I think the thing that is so alarming is, is the desensitization that has gone on and how we uh, in the church have kind of uh, allowed ourselves to be taken along with that tide rather than opposing it. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, when we think about this, part of the motivation, of course, gets down to a core issue of man's sin nature, uh, our, our uh, fallen condition in which uh, we get pulled into all of this. And not only from the standpoint of consuming it, but then this is big business, isn't it? It's major money here. Oh, it's a billion-dollar industry. Pornography itself worldwide is, is, is above $50 billion. Uh, child pornography is above three billion. So there's there's a ton of money here, and and you know just thinking about sex and how it sells. There was something on on Tuesday morning on Good Morning America that for me pointed out where we are, what time of the day it is on this. It, it's eleven fifty nine. Uh, the new uh, Britney Spears album has just come out, and they did a fifteen minute piece celebrating her career. And this is at 9 o'clock in the morning, and they are showing videos of her songs that basically feature groups of half-naked young people writhing all over one another. And the entire piece 
is just a tribute to her. There is, there is not one word as to, you know, whether or not this is a good thing. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I, I doubt very seriously that the, that the ABC switchboard was swamped with uh, disapproving phone calls. And that's what I mean when I say we've kind of gone along with it. Uh, the kind of wholesale uh, softcore pornography that you see in any mall, that you see, uh, you know, uh, the, the Washington Redskins football uh, calendar had a cheerleader on the cover th- that was topless. She had her arms positioned, uh, you know, in a way to hide it a little bit. But basically, this is the kind of stuff that's going on. And we participate in the culture. We, go, we shop at the mall. We, you know, we watch the television shows. And we don't realize that by, by going along with this, we are help creating a climate where our young people are, are learning a, a model for intimacy that is not going to serve them at all. We've become terribly desensitized to all of this, haven't we? I mean, uh, down through the years, as society and culture have changed, and I, I would suspect in a significant fashion since the advent of the Internet uh, that brings oh, yeah. all of this into your home at the touch of a finger, oftentimes whether you want it or not, uh, well, yeah, that, that, that yeah. maybe, maybe a lot of people... Good, decent people, uh, people that recognize that, that there is damage and injury that's suffered mm-hmm. here uh, when you engage in this kind of behavior on both ends of the perspective, um, have finally maybe just kind of, what, thrown in the towel, Steve, and figured, you know what, this thing has become so big, so out of control, so behemoth, that it's hardly worth not even fighting anymore because it seems as if you're fighting a losing battle. Well, I've actually heard some Christians say that, and, and it really breaks my heart, because my feeling is you, you wouldn't let your children go out and play in the front yard without teaching them to hold hands and, and look both ways before they cross the street. And yet, day after day after day, we equip our, our young people with devices that access this material, and not even just access it, that, that allow them to create their own uh, material. I mean, that's happening as well now. And we are, you know, we are not equipping our young people to, to deal with the culture they're growing up in. Uh, and and I, I really want to make the point that, that pornography is not about sex. Pornography is about, uh, it's a fantasy experience. You, you know, you, you, you cut off the, the power and the screen goes blank. Uh, this is about using a fantasy experience and and using people because you're taking something from those people in in the uh, in the video or the magazine or whatever you're taking something from from them without giving anything back and i think that's what's so dangerous about it it, it creates a false model of intimacy and what's even scarier is that there is new brain science that shows that pornography is actually rewiring and brain mapping, uh, you know, traditional intimacy right out of our kids. Well, and I'm wondering if at that level, Steve, we're not watching a major paradigm shift taking place in society uh, overall. I mean, we've seen great celebratory comments related to things like uh, Facebook and its role in in such matters as the toppling of uh, Mubarak in Egypt and the notion that with the Internet and social media, you know, even as much as a, a, 
horrible um, dictatorship would try to clamp down on information getting around to people or out of a, of a given country, uh, that this has sort of been the feather pillow from which you'll never stuff all the feathers back into again. So right. as much as is being celebrated, it's helping people get connected and stay together. My goodness, here on Facebook, I ran across a buddy from high school from 50 years ago. How wonderful mm-hmm. that is. And yet mm-hmm. it's creating, I would suspect, this sense of, of not just false intimacy, but these walls where all of a sudden now levels at which in normative relationships, in mm-hmm. historically normal relationships, uh, it, it just it's, it's shifted the terms of engagement. It has, and, and, and Facebook and, and the Internet and all the technologies, of themselves, they're not evil. It, it is always a matter of how we're going to use those technologies. And you're right, those technologies can be used for good. And, and I mean, here we are talking on the radio and, and sharing this message. So, you know, I, I don't encourage people to be... Uh, to be down on technology, I, I encourage responsible use of technology. And just for a moment, I feel like I didn't really address your question about uh, you know, the, the people who feel hopeless about this. I mean, I always come back to God's mercies being new every morning. He's given us another day. He's given us new children being born into the world. Obviously, if he's given us a new day and new life, then there is hope and there is a chance and 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 responsible people people who are moral not just christian people people uh, of all uh, faiths and backgrounds who are moral have a responsibility to step up and protect our kids the the truth of the matter is a hundred percent of our kids are going to see pornography before they graduate from high school in this culture so you know people are always asking me what the statistics are at this point i think you can throw them all out the window you're right the feathers are out of the pillow this is the world we live in our only choice now is how will we respond to it how will we mentor our kids how will we get healthy how will we shine the light of truth in the church on this issue Let's pause on that point. When we come back, let's see if we can't touch on some of the answers to those critical questions. I mean, all right, if we recognize the fact, as you point out, um, our kids are going to be exposed to this. There are those listening right now, housewives, and, you know, folks, I never went looking for this. And I went to this website looking for a recipe, and all of a sudden, we all know what the spam does and so forth. How do you go about equipping your kids to understand what this is and, and countering what appears to be some very mixed messages. I mean, mom and dad and the church are all saying that this is not good, not healthy, um, is going to be potentially ruinous to your ability to carry on a healthy, proper relationship. And yet, if it's so bad, why is it so prevalent? We'll answer that question as well. Steve Siller, my guest, founder of Music for the Soul, executive producer of Somebody's Daughter. We're talking today about um, a recent uh, Harvard Crimson article on pornographic pornography uh, and the question of ethics and uh, how addiction to pornography can be so ruinous to so many aspects of normal living. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
somebody's child. Our conversation with Steve Siller, who is, by the way, the executive producer of the uh, highlight of the tune you just heard a moment ago, Somebody's Daughter. We're talking about the impact of pornography and the challenges that we face in trying to bring balance to this topic. I mean, it was challenging 30, 40, 50 years ago with the advent of, of, of certain publications out there, you know, the, the Hugh Hefners of the world, uh, uh, Larry Flint's and those. Uh, now, with the advent of the World Wide Web, it, it's impossible to control it. And as Steve points out, parents face the fact your children, like it or not, will be exposed to pornography. The question is, how will they react to it? Will they see it? Will they balance biblical perspective? And toward that end, is, is it problematic and challenging, particularly for young people, Steve, because as much as parents in the church and those in the know are trying to warn kids about the impact of all of this, that it's not just something that's, that's ooh, nasty, but it can create false intimacy that later on can damage uh, the ability to carry on a normal relationship with a spouse. But, but then, too, that notion that we're trying to combat something here with so many mixed messages in the general public that I would imagine a lot of teenagers look at this and say, well, wait a minute, you know, if it's so bad and so terrible, how come it's so pervasive? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I think we have to do, and as Christian parents, as, as parents in general, it's it's not easy, because, I mean, you know, we've all heard about the talk, right, ever since we oh, were yes, kids. yes, the talk. The, the point is, I think one of the first things we can do for our kids, you know, we always tell our kids at church the truth will set them free, uh, then we don't tell about the truth that they're living through. And I think what we need to say to them is, look, it's natural to have curiosity about sex. God created sex. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It is exciting. But you want to experience it in the proper context and with a proper understanding of its power. So toward that end, let me share with you why pornography is not the proper way to experience sex. I, I th- but I think that starting point is admitting, yeah, this is exciting. This is this this gets you worked up, and and I think I know kids hate to be manipulated. Whenever I talk to high school kids and even college kids, I always tell them, don't you realize that pornographers are manipulating your natural hormones to their financial advantage? They don't care about you. They don't care whether this is going to ruin your ability to have intimacy. They don't care whether it's going to mess up your relationship with your girlfriend. They don't care about any of that. They just want to get you hooked when you're young so they'll have a customer for life. And I think when kids realize that, they can get a little angry, and that's when I think they have a chance against this stuff, when they value themselves enough to say, you know what, I'm not going to be tricked into spending, you know, ruining my intimacy and spending my worth and my value, uh, throwing it away on this stuff. The talk. How, how soon should we begin the talk? How how educated do parents need to get ahead of it? You know, and I know that sounds like an odd question. It's like, I'm your parent. Of course I understand how the birds and the bees work. If I didn't, you wouldn't be here. Well, but yet know. it's changed so drastically. Steve, even from when I was a kid, and I'm, I'm, sure. I'm, 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 you know, I'm certainly no kid, but I'm no fossil either. It's changed so dramatically to try to be able to understand and relate to these kids as they're dealing with a barrage of not just the Internet, but now cell phones and texting and sexting and all this, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, I think, yes, parents have to, have to be educated. In fact, uh, there's a number of things I want to say about this. Uh, I, I have a, a, something I've created called the Things You Can Do list, and I want to make sure everybody knows how to get it because it's free. It's at our website. One of the things that I encourage uh, parents to do is get educated, and I encourage churches to have ongoing parental er- education in this area because the technology that was the coolest six months ago, you know how that goes. It's out of date already. I mean, kids are able to access this stuff through ways that most parents don't even realize, like through a Wii. You know, I mean, they're, they're, it's crazy what, what the technology can do. And our kids fly this stuff like jet planes because they've been on the technology since they were little. Whereas, you know, folks like us, I mean, we've come to it later in life. So we, we don't even really understand how quickly uh, and how pervasively this stuff can move around. So, yes, education is important. But I think as, as far as having the talk early, uh, you know, we, we, we have to understand Kids are seeing this stuff. The average age of exposure now to, to pornography, I've heard as low as eight. The oldest age I've heard in the last year is 11 on average. Uh, you know, I wish we could afford to wait uh, till later because, you know, we all hate this idea of, of ruining our kids' innocence. But, uh, you know, a dear friend of mine, his, his, his six-year-old was doing a little homework assignment and came across something hardcore. So, uh, you know, and I've heard that story more than once. So I just really, you know, want to encourage people. Obviously, you need to do things age appropriately, but I want to encourage people not to shy away from beginning to have these discussions in a way that will give their kids some guardrails. And as far as technology goes, I mean, parents need to understand, you know, you need to have all kinds of, of Internet accountability and Internet filter software on all your computers. Uh, the, you know, the blocking software, you need to have it on your phones, you need to have it on your televisions, you need to have every computer in the house and pass through rooms. My son is 17, he still doesn't have a computer or a TV in his room, and he feels Amish, that's too bad. Uh, you know, that's just too bad. You know, that says our kids are going to go out into the world. you got to know your parents' friends. you got to talk about this stuff. It isn't any fun. Like you said, I wish it wasn't true, but it is. got to talk about this stuff, because we can't I put it this way. We, the church wants to be a light in the world. We can't be a light in the world until we mentor our own kids. We can't mentor our own kids until we admit that as adults we struggle with it. We need to come clean and get healthy. And we can't do any of that until we just start talking about it. So, to, so for me, somebody's daughter is that light switch that can be turned on in a church. Start the conversation. And once you do that, there's all sorts of things you can do. Some good insights from Steve Siller, again, executive producer of Somebody's Daughter. Steve, finally, if folks uh, touched by this song would like to get a copy of it, is it available through iTunes or how? Uh, the DVD's on iTunes. The DVD CD set is at our website. They can go to somebodysdaughter.org. Or, and they can also, to get the three things you can do list, they can go to musicforthesoul.org. On the home page, click on pornography, and it'll take you to a page with all sorts of free resources. And I really encourage them to get the things you can do list from our page, print it out, take it to their church, read through it, and find some things that you can begin to do, things you can do personally, 
things you can do in your family, in your church, and in your community at large to make a difference. Because if we all get involved and start taking a piece of this, we can turn this tide. I really believe we can. Indeed so. Steve Siller, thanks so much for the time. And again, on the web, somebodysdaughter.org or musicforthesoul.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. At a prayer vigil and rally today, these African-American pastors and other pro-life supporters charged Planned Parenthood with, quote, blatant racism and said the group targets African-American women for abortions. They want Congress to stop their funding. Planned Parenthood, no more will you receive one dime uh, dipped in the blood of black children. Today we come to stop what Planned Parenthood is doing. We want to break it and bring an end to the genocide of African-American babies. Part of what prompted this protest are some phone calls, now on YouTube, by pro-life advocates to Planned Parenthood clinics around the country. The callers were testing the employees to see if they would accept money intended for specific race-based abortions. Here's an example of a call to an Ohio clinic. When I underwrite abortion, does that apply to minorities too? specifically want it to underwrite an abortion for a minority person, you can target it that way. You can you can specify that that's how you want it spent. Okay, yeah, because there's, so de- there's definitely way too many black people in Ohio, so I'm just trying to do my part. Wow. Now, as unbelievable as that bit of audio that you heard is, uh, it's absolutely true. And it's absolutely incredible that there are members of the African-American community who don't get that who don't understand the genocide taking place right underneath their noses. Thank God for people like Reverend Walter Hoy, who's been a frequent guest on this program that has been working on billboards to help educate people across the country as to the genocide that's taking place. Well, not a remarkable new conversation that has come to light. Uh, comments made by Reverend Carlton Vasey, who is with the, quote, Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, close quote. Sounds a lot like military intelligence to me. That is now suggesting that women need abortion because political forces have denied them health care. With some insights on this, Kim Katola joins us. She's a pro-life advocate, former host of CBS News Talk Powerhouse WCCO Radio, and she joins us now by phone. Kim, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us. What is your reaction to, to the remarks by by uh, Reverend VZ on this topic, this idea that, that women find abortion as a necessity because, quote-unquote, political forces are denying them health care? Well, first of all, Craig, uh, thank you so much for the invitation to speak. You know, I've been listening um, throughout the program today, and I love your show open about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And I I entrust the second half of that dictum to you. (laughs) I'm really called to comfort the afflicted. This is my interest in the issue because I know the lifelong consequences of abortion. And the idea that abortion is health care for women or that women need abortion because there's some gap to access to health care is um, not true. And it's a, it's a non sequitur. One doesn't follow from the other. Um, generally, the people who perform an abortion on a woman are not part of a woman's health care team, even part of her health, reproductive health care team. 
uh, abortion practitioners tend to specialize, if you will. They're specialists just like, you know, they're a specialist to remove spleens, if you, uh, if you want to put it in those terms. And uh, there's seldom any sort of relationship requiring any bedside manner or health care beyond the procedure for the person to be giving to the woman. Uh, it's a separate entity in the lives of women. What, what I find completely unconscionable about this, Kim, is the fact that uh, Reverend Carlton VZ, who is with the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, um, recently participated in an interview on National Public Radio, uh, the audio of which, by the way, is, is posted on Kim's website, and we'll share the address with you in a moment. Uh, what I find absolutely shocking is here's an African-American who is basically advocating abortion on demand in the black community, uh, apparently either ignorant of or choosing to ignore the fact that while fully more than 30% of the abortions that are performed in America today, 30% um, of them are African-American women who apprise 13% of the U.S. population, divided in half, because of course half of that number are men, and the last time I checked, men couldn't have kids, so we're talking about 6.5% of the U.S. population, but then we have to narrow it down to those of childbearing years. So in reality then, Kim, 3.25% of the U.S. population is having 30% of the abortions in America, and somebody like Reverend, uh, Reverend uh, Vizi doesn't see that as a problem? It's stunning, isn't it? And, you know, in the debate that you're referring to, it was, I think, July 18th was the date, um, and it aired on NPR. Um, both the host and Reverend Vizi took issue with Ryan Bomberger's initiative, TooManyAborted.com. He's uh, got an organization called the Radiance Foundation. I'm not personally acquainted with Mr. Bomberger, but I'm very much an admirer of his work. And in their conversation about whether or not these billboards have any merit and whether or not they're based in truth, Reverend Vizi pretty much said that, well, the reasons that those rates are higher have to do with other factors, uh, that, um, you know, this has to do with poor educational opportunities and this has to do with uh, socioeconomic pressures, uh, and that Planned Parenthood is there providing health care. It's not just that they're there for abortions. And, and, you know, there's no, first of all, there's no logic to is to the thread. I mean, I we'll give him the benefit of the doubt and maybe say that maybe something was edited, <laughs> you know, in, because I know that happens in radio. But the way that his statement came across in the interview that NPR aired, uh, it follows the logic that I've heard from organizations such as those that Reverend Beasy represents and, and other people who are clergy. And the reason why this is so um, important to my heart is that as a person, a person that is who suffered from abortion, I knew that it was immoral after I had made that mistake. Uh, and when I went looking for a resolution to the guilt People condoning it to me and people telling me that I had done nothing wrong only increased my distress. And that is what, you know, when, when women go to clergy, when women hear from someone who has the title reverend in front of their name, 
that there is no moral problem with killing an innocent child. Uh, all we're doing is denying them their one opportunity to find repentance, their one opportunity to find redemption in our Lord. And so um, for me personally, it's, it's distressing that clergy would be perpetuating moral confusion. Well, and I think in that moral confusion too, Kim, it is setting women up for, in some cases, a lifetime of an internal rage that results from the confusion raised by an innate sense of this is a baby, this is part of my DNA, this does represent me insofar as, you know, ten little fingers and ten tiny toes, etc., etc. And there, there's something, I think, innate in us in the core understanding that, yes, this is a life, and that no amount of denial otherwise is going to change that factor. And then women find themselves suddenly in, in, in a post-traumatic stress disorder kind of arena where they feel guilty, they are confused, they are angry. Uh, there's a whole host of emotions going on. And instead of providing hope and healing and restoration for women that are in a post-abortive situation, instead what these kinds of, of, of so-called ministers are doing, and I, I put that in quotes, they, they are exacerbating the problem. They are, in fact, adding to the anger and the frustration and the rage and the confusion. And and instead of helping out, they're, they're actually making the situation worse. I, I want to pause on that point for a moment, uh, because when we come back after the corner, a topic uh, too important not to get down to uh, some debate on, and that is this notion that women are being forced into this. They're being left no other choice than to abort, because, again, in the words of Reverend Vesey, women need abortion because political forces have denied them health care. Excuse me? I'm Craig Roberts. Back to more of our conversation with Kim Katola as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation. Our guest tonight is Kim Katola. She is a former host of CBS News Talk Powerhouse WCCO Radio and um, joining us tonight to give some insights as to uh, what seems to be yet the next level in this ongoing debate. An important one, I think, because as we have articulated on this program in the past, there is a genocide taking place in America today. It's clear, it's concise, it's calculated, it is being driven by organizations like Planned Parenthood and sadly being entirely ignored by so-called leadership within the church today and shockingly so by members of the African-American church who apparently, Kim, have chosen to sort of whistle past the cemetery and pretend as if all of this is not happening. What I don't understand is that Barack Obama comes into office in the first 24 hours of his presidency. He reverses um, what had been a long-standing so-called Mexico City policy, Title X funding, the very first official act that he engages in is basically a thank you tip of the hat to the uh, the abortion industry. And then on top of that, uh, sets in pace the most dramatic change in health care in the history of our nation and now suddenly suggests, suggests that political forces are denying women health care in America. And that's the reason why they need abortion. I don't quite get the logic there. 
Well, it's, there, it's actually a logical fallacy. It's called poisoning the well. So if you can convince people that those who are opposed to killing the unborn because they're a human being, that they're opposed to it on political grounds, and they're playing politics with women's lives and all the other uh, rhetorical slogans that get thrown around, if you can convince them that these are religious fundamentalists and that they're uh, playing politics and they just have an agenda and that there is no human life and that there is no grief reaction, including the rage that you so eloquently described before the break, Craig, well, then, sure, it makes sense. You know, you're playing politics with women's lives. It sounds like a, you know, a serious charge. But, of course, it's all political on both sides. And the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, first of all, check the name. A coalition is a political organization. And indeed, if you look at what their activities involve, they're heavily involved in the justice aspect of the abortion question, and they have, uh, you know, legislative activity all over their organizational literature and websites. Well, if they were going to even be true to their moniker, it would suggest that they would be as equally defensive of those on the Planned Parenthood side of the equation as they would be maybe uh, demonstrating on behalf of First Amendment rights of those involved in the pro-life movement, because after all, if you are supporting reproductive choice, doesn't that suggest that it's an either-or, meaning you either abort the child or keep the child? If so, where is the voice that is being lent to the saving of the child's life side of this equation. Apparently, in reality, there is none. Well, and, you know, when Reverend Carlton Vesey said to Ryan Bomberger on this NBR interview you referred to earlier, um, earlier this month, he said to him, you, you have moral on your side, but we, are, we also have morals on our side. And that's a problem for a, a person who is representing God's Word. I mean, there's morals, and there's truth, and there's something else. There is not morals on your side and morals on my side. I mean, either, either abortion takes the life of an unborn child or it doesn't. And either you believe that's unjust or you don't. And you can go to God's Word as your moral standard, or you can simply go to human decency. But you can't both be right about the truth. Well, the other irony behind this very twisted line of thinking, too, that is being promoted by those in the religious community uh, that come down on the side of the equation of, of this issue, is the idea that somehow because there are certain societal ills that have to be dealt with, whether we're talking about lack of opportunity, lack of education, uh, lack of proper health care, etc., etc., that somehow we're going to be able to address or cure a social ill uh, through the extermination of a people group. I mean, if we're going to take that reasoning, then all of us ought to applaud Adolf Hitler because they considered the, the Jewish question to be a social ill in Europe during the Second World War, and their final solution, so-called, to that problem was the elimination of an entire people group. I don't understand if, if we apply evenly and fairly, Kim, that same reasoning across the board, then it seems to me that a America or the world owes Adolf Hitler an apology. Well, I, I really, again, want to give credit to Ryan Bomberger, and you can find the interview on his website on, I think, the Radiance Foundation is the name of his organization. If you Google that, you find him. 
And what you'll see, I think, as you, as you look at his work to raise awareness and to educate on this issue, is his deep and abiding respect for black families and his love for black children and his wish to see them, you know, be given life and be given a chance at life and a deep and abiding respect for black women that they would be treated with the dignity of motherhood. You know, um, as opposed to the statements of Reverend Vesey. And what's interesting is the Goodmacher Institute, the, the NPR host, um, said that uh, the Guttmacher Institute was a nonpartisan organization. <laughs> which which is fully owned and operated by Planned Parenthood. Well, and I don't know that they still are, but they certainly began there. But they, they also state clearly in all of their literature that they are an abortion rights organization. Now, that's political, isn't it, if we're talking about rights? Absolutely. The Marker Institute put out, put out this report, which the Los Angeles Times published in 2008, about the racial disparities in abortion. And indeed, noting from the Guttmacher Institute, again, an abortion advocacy organization, that this racial disparity is real. Uh, but they concluded, because they always do policy analysis in addition to their so-called reporting, they concluded, and I'm quoting here, this much is true, in the United States, the abortion rate for black women is almost five times that for white women. Anti-abortion activists, including some African-American pastors, have been waging a campaign around this fact, falsely asserting the disparity is the result of aggressive marketing by abortion providers to minority communities. And they went on to conclude that these pastors appear intent on trying to protect minority women from themselves. And no, the pastors are trying to protect minority women from abortion. It couldn't be any clearer. And yet it seems as though Reverend Beasy simply picked up the Guttmacher talking points and somehow went along with their justification. Well, cl- clearly, Kim, there's practice. a very dangerous agenda at foot here. Let me uh, jump to a quick call here, too, before our time is up. James in Union City, come on in with your comment or question for Kim Katola. Hi, Kim, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show. I, I had a question. Uh, a few months ago, a friend of mine, we were talking about this subject, and uh, he, he had told me that uh, basically uh, uh, Planned Parenthood couldn't use our tax money for abortions so I looked into it and looked like on their website that that's what they're saying, that they can't. Uh, but they must be using some kind of double talk, I think, because it seems like that is what they're in the business for. So I wonder if you had any clarity on that subject. All right, good question. Uh, Kim, any insights you can offer our caller here? Uh, you know, it's not my area of expertise, so my understanding of it is that the funds are not fungible. Uh, and again, I'm not an accountant, but in other words... Um, you you can't you can't set it out. You know you you might be able to make envelopes for your grocery money versus your rent money in your home budget, but once <laughs> once they've collected their uh, donations because they are a nonprofit as well as their uh, political action funds because they're a PAC, they uh, they have you know an aspect of their organization that is a political action. And then uh, the reproductive health services versus the abortion services. Well, 
how do you really sort that out? Well, you really can't. It all goes into one organization. And at the end of the day, okay, let's say that they're not directly using the tax dollar to perform an abortion, but they're taking monies that are then being shifted somewhere else so that they're either using the money to promote abortion in the black community or that frees up dollars from other areas to perform abortion. So in the end, it's all the same thing. To suggest that it's not all coming out of the same pot, so to speak, uh, James, is... Go ahead, please. The proof is in the pudding. Planned Parenthood has argued, I've heard them on the news, and I, again, not my expertise, but they've argued that it represents, that their abortion revenue represents only 3% of their annual budget. Okay, so, you know what, if they were against abortion, and they really were convinced that it, it takes a human life and that it harms women, couldn't they put that resource into helping women, literally helping women prevent abortions just by not offering to do it anymore? Well, <laughs> I yeah. mean, point, point well taken. In the end of the day, it also demonstrates that the agenda behind the existence of this organization that is clearly out and available on the Internet for anybody to read goes back to the original vision of its founder, Margaret Sanger, and that is the science of eugenics, meaning the survival of the fittest, and the idea that certain people groups have a greater right to exist than others do. And one of these days we get more time on the topic, we'll dive into this a bit more deeper. We're unfortunately out of time. Kim Coltola, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Folks want to get more information about the comments made by Reverend Carlton Vesey of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. You can get details on that topic and on Kim's work on the web at Kim Coltola, K-E-H-T I'm sorry, K-E-T-O-L-A dot com. That's KimCatola dot com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.